0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like to talk today about the, um, the practice as a process of purification And I'd like to start by reading from today's paper. This is the question, man. Mm. The question is, why are you homeless? They've asked a few people. Wayne Carlson, 37. It started with a car accident. I had to do 90 days in the hospital and they cut me loose from my job. Then I did something that landed me in jail for a year, and I've been basically homeless since I got out in 84. The linen business is my profession. I went to several linen plants, but they, but they weren't hiring. I want to go to work and make money again. It's lousy out here. I'll read two more. Kenny Rogers, 49. Why are you homeless? Because I'm an alcoholic. I'm crippled. I'm epileptic. I have high blood pressure. So it's impossible for me to work. I haven't worked in 20 years. I spent 13 years in the penitentiary. Lived with my mom until she died. And I've been on the streets for about three years. I applied for SSI, but I'm unable to keep appointments. I'm going to check in to detox today. I'm close to death. And one last one. Cindy Cordero, 26. I was fired and didn't have the rent. I said I'd have it in two weeks, but they kicked me out. That was 1983, and I've been on the streets on and off since then. I've had jobs, but I have a bad hand and drop things. I tried to get on general assistance, but you need an ID, and my purse was stolen. Amazing and when you think how many other stories there are out there. And of course when you hear those kinds of stories with people, with real names and real feelings, the thought that comes to me is, my goodness, that could be me. Those are real people. <coughs> And so, then another question comes to my mind, how is it that I'm here? Practicing with other people, sharing the Dharma together, how is it that we all got here? When I look back in my life at various events and situations, at key moments in my life, I could have reacted differently in certain key moments rather than learning from them there might have been a closeness or contraction or fear or bitterness rather than having some sense of more to discover in life some inkling of another reality that somehow fortunately led me to explore the Dharma, it could have been very different. And each of these people, just like you and I, were babies and uh, cute probably and uh, had the adults oogling over them. Just somehow there's different turns that we all make. Not many people hear the Dharma very few, and even fewer practice it. Fortunate enough to have the circumstances to practice it. It's not an accident that we're here, however. <clears throat> There's the karmic law of cause and effect that the Buddha spoke about quite often. And it said that the opportunity to practice is due to accumulated forces of purity or paramis based on past actions that lead to happiness and good circumstances, the opportunity to practice. Simply a law of cause and effect. There's two kinds of paramis or two sources of paramis paramis or these purifying forces that come from our conduct and paramis that are a result of purifying of wisdom and purity of conduct wholesome actions lead to happy surroundings good circumstances and relationships and perhaps hearing the dharma The purity of wisdom leads to practicing the dharma, having the highest happiness as a possibility, um, developing insight. And both paramis need to be developed, not just the chance to practice, but once you're in this situation, to do it, to get the understanding that comes from clearly seeing. Whether or not you relate to karma, or um, that kind of um, epistemology, it's not so important. The fact is that we're here, and now what do we do with it, make the most of it? Because even if we get to our present situation, you can't stop here. You can't rest on your laurels. Even people who are in wonderful circumstances out in the world, Perhaps due to past actions in other lives, uh, quite a few of them are quite miserable. Okay, so you got a great scene, and you're caught in greed, hatred, and delusion, just the same. So we can't stop; we have to keep on exploring, continuing the journey. I remember Upanita giving a talk once that really it shook me up for a little while when he was trying to really encourage people to put out full effort. And and I was saying, well, you know, got to balance it and keep it light as well. And he would say, basically his message, your head is on fire, practice like your head is on fire. <coughs> and he would, he said uh, in this one particular talk, there are no guarantees, there are no guarantees what's going to happen next lifetime. You might... Reap some old karmic uh, actions and be in a hell realm for 85,000 lifetimes. I practice a little harder the next day. (laughs) Still, I think there's a balance about that practicing with your head like your head is on fire. It's true, though, to make the most of the opportunity, not straining and struggling and striving and out of fear, but to see that this is a a very precious circumstance. One of the main commentaries on the practice is called the Vasudhi the path of purification. And it talks about the development, the full development of of our potential, quieting our minds down through concentration that comes from um, a cleanliness in our life and through the meditation and then leading to deeper wisdom and insight. The, food, the Sudhimaga, its called the path of purification. There's a peeling off of layers that—that um, that is the process that we're involved in, and you've probably felt it as you've been here over these over these days. There's a physical kind of unlayering or peeling off where your body starts to feel more open and the knots start to release. And there's, to some degree, a mental quieting and an emotional release that occurs from time to time, and there's a, a feeling of spaciousness and openness and lightness, even when it starts to get heavy at times, that you can see is different from when you first got here. The vibration is somehow operating on a higher plane, if you will. It takes time though and sometimes it's hard to realize you're in the middle of this process when you have a lousy sitting or when your body is aching and you don't think that much is happening. It takes time and it takes patience and often we can't see it. Usually we can't see it when we're in the middle until we take a look back and say, oh yeah, something has happened. the Buddha talked about this um, process of purification as um, a refinement of mind that he likened to refining gold, purification of gold. It's a a nice analogy. He says, there are, O monks, gross impurities in gold such as earth and sand, gravel and grit. Now the goldsmith or the apprentice, first pours the gold into a trough and washes, rinses, and cleans it thoroughly. When he has done this, there still remains moderate impurities in the gold, such as fine grit and coarse sand. Then the goldsmith, or the apprentice, washes, rinses, and cleans it again. When he has done this, there still remains minute impurities in the gold, such as fine sand and black dust. Now the goldsmith, or the apprentice, repeats the washing, and thereafter only the gold dust remains. He now pours the gold into a melting pot and smelts it, melts it together. But he does not take it out yet from the vessel, as the dross has not yet been entirely removed, and the gold is not yet quite pliant, workable, and bright it is still brittle and does not yet lend itself easily to molding. But a time comes when the goldsmith, or the apprentice, repeats the melting thoroughly so that the flaws are entirely removed. The gold is now quite pliant, workable, and bright, and it lends itself easily to molding. Whatever ornament the goldsmith now wishes to make of it be it a diadem, earrings, a necklace, or a golden chain, the gold can now be used for that purpose. Similarly, in the case of a monk or a nun devoted to higher mental training, there are in that person gross impurities, namely wrong conduct in deeds, words, and thoughts. Such conduct the renunciate gives up and puts away makes an end of it, not allowing it to recur. When he has abandoned these, there are still impurities of a moderate degree that cling to a monk or a nun devoted to higher mental training, namely sensuous, angry, and violent thoughts. Such thoughts, the monk gives up, puts them away, lets go of them, relinquishing them, When he or she has abandoned these, there are still some subtle impurities that cling to renunciate devoted to higher mental training, namely thoughts about his relatives, his home or country, or his reputation. When he has abandoned these, there still remains thoughts about higher mental states and experiences in meditation. Thus, concentration is not yet properly calmed nor refined. It has not attained to full tranquility, nor has it achieved mental unification, for it is maintained by strenuous suppression of the defilements. But there comes a time when the mind gains firmness within, settles down, becomes unified and concentrated that concentration is then calm and refined and has attained to full tranquility and achieved mental unification, not maintained by a strenuous suppression of the defilements. Then, to whatever mental state realizable by higher, supernormal knowledge, he directs his mind, in that very object, he achieves the capacity of realizing it when the necessary conditions obtain. So it's a gradual, gradual, gradual process of cleaning out. Gradual falling away of getting caught in particular mind patterns, tapes, and thoughts. Not that they don't keep on recurring. They do, it seems, until you're at the highest stages of enlightenment. But the the hooks that they sink in us or that we seem to get caught in don't grab for quite as long or quite as deeply the cleanser in this process this purification is the mindfulness because it it interrupts the momentum and the power of those unskillful patterns in mind and so you can start to get a glimpse of another way—the power of mindfulness. It's it's very, very potent. And I've read before from uh, this book, *The Power of Mindfulness*. It's a wonderful book by Panaka Tara. Just mechanically explaining one way that mindfulness works, he says, in practicing bare attention or mindfulness we keep still at the mental and spatial place of observation. Amidst the loud demands of the inner and outer world, there is in it the strength of tranquility, the capacity of deferring action and applying the break, of stopping rash interference, of suspending judgment while pausing for observation of facts, and wise reflection on them. There is also a wholesome slowing down in the impetuosity of thought, speech, and action. By following the way of mindfulness and training ourselves to keep still, or pause, in the attitude of bare attention, we refuse to take up the world's persistent challenge to our dispositions for greed or hatred, We protect ourselves against rash and delusive judgments. We refrain from blindly plunging into the whirlpool of interfering action with all its inherent dangers. And from the Tao Te Ching, he who keeps still or knows when to stop will not meet danger. So those moments of mindfulness allow us to pause and to keep still and not blindly react as our strong conditioning uh, keeps us doing normally. And just a glimpse, and I'm sure most people here have seen this from time to time, just a glimpse of another way to relate to your thoughts or your fears or your habits can change your whole relationship to them. Somebody was just saying today in one of the interviews how after having a kind of difficult time on uh, at times on this retreat and even through other retreats she finally saw today or a few days ago the power of relating to the thoughts in a different way. It's like a powerful flash where you don't have to worry about attaining more than you've got. You can relax and let it be. And then the meditation started to open up. Sometimes it's that sudden experience. Oftentimes it's quite gradual. And you kind of get the idea and it takes a while for the actuality to catch up. But that's okay. If you get the idea, that's a start. In developmental psychology, it's talked about how people first learn the values and children first learn values by being exposed to others that are operating at a higher level, a higher level of functioning. And you start to let it sink in and your ideas expand the understanding. And through the repetition of that understanding, the actions start to follow. And it becomes a part of you. And so it's okay if, just at the beginning, you have an idea of what it would be like to not get caught in your, in your mind. Most people don't have a clue. Little by little, the more you keep... Letting that idea register, and the more you keep bringing mindfulness to to bear in those moments, it starts becoming the way you relate to them. This is from uh, Blake. Those who enter the kingdom, sorry, those who enter the gates of heaven are not beings who have no passions or who have curbed the passions but those who have cultivated an understanding of them. You don't have to be concerned with getting rid of everything. That's just another project. And it's a never-ending one because there seems to always be more to come up. Just understanding them. And even though the conditioning is strong, those glimpses transform. They touch a place in us, a place in us that we know is true, that is incontrovertibly true, that place of rightness, of wisdom, of fullness of sweetness that comes when the mind isn't contracted. You know when you touch that place? Oh, of course. That even if 20 people told you that's not the way it is, you know it's so. It's like you connect with a deeper wisdom that nobody can persuade you away from. That moment of contacting with purity, the truth. It's it's a very fascinating one for me. Think of when it happens in your practice, you know, what it feels like for you. Oh yes. There's the, the notion of bodhicitta. Or that place in us, the seed in us, the seed of awakening, the seed of enlightenment that's waiting to sprout. If we can contact it, nourish it, allow it to grow, it's in all of us. We all have that capacity to be a Buddha, to be awake. And in the right circumstances and with the right attitude, it will awaken. You might be uh, familiar with Sarvodia, this movement in Sri Lanka uh, started by a man named Ariaratna that has had a very major impact in many people's lives in Sri Lanka. Now, getting people to help others. And I, I have a, a good fortune of, of um, having a friendship with uh, this man, Ariaratna Ari. And he talks, he's he's very inspiring Times he talks about how if you give people the opportunity to truly express their natural compassion or to truly um, experience what dana is about what generosity and giving is about you don't have to convince them to do it because it feels so right and you want to do it. Again, it's touching that place is of purity where the experience itself starts to transform. <coughs> Maharaji, Ninkaroli Baba, one of the one of the things that he instructs or instructed people to do, one of his main teachings and one that I found um one of the main ones that I try to live up to, not always, but but often, it's one of my main practices, is try to keep on tuning into the good in people. Even when you know all the garbage that's around them, you know, and it's so obvious, and this, or that, if you keep on going for the good, it's like you're touching that place in them, that place of bodhicitta, that allows that to awaken. Think of how you are around somebody who, who sees the good in you just brings it up. Or when you're around someone, another person, who just sees what's wrong in you, that's what gets struck, that chord gets struck and that's what gets resonated and that's who you become. It's, it's so simple and, and so profound. A lot of times, though, it's easier to find it out there than in here, especially when you're spending time on your cushion. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Seeing the good in me, seeing the purity inside me, is an amazing capacity of the mind to identify with the garbage. That's the real me. Just, this just came up in another interview today yeah. see that part and that part and that part and it seems like that's, that's who I really am but often there's just a, a lack of seeing all the beautiful parts that's the kind of that's the assumed ground in which we're operating and it's not as tight it's not as solid and so it doesn't stand out as much and of course, the more you start to clean yourself out, the more the impurities stand out. They become much more apparent. Ramdas says, and be here now, as you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that you're not getting more caught in the illusion, you're only seeing it more clearly. But it gets so discouraging when you see that stuff in you and then you say, boom, that's still there, that's me, and then you focus in on it and and then you can dwell on it for hours or days or a lifetime, as many people do. And yesterday, Rohana brought up the, the issue of the different forces of good and evil, of right and, and wholesomeness and and cruelty, and it's, a, it's such a, a large issue. Now, I don't have any answer for it, but it seems that, <clears throat> as Jack mentioned, there is a space in which all of that is happening, good, evil, right, wrong, skillful, unskillful, and that there is a choice that we can choose, and that really leaves the responsibility up to us. And our choice towards harmony comes from experiencing the greater or deeper joy for ourselves when we've touched that place in purity. And not to minimize the value of those occasional glimpses. Not everyone has the opportunity to see that because their lives are so caught up in fear and hatred and the circumstances that they're around. But when given that opportunity, there's a, a saying, a Taoist saying you might be familiar with, when a wise person hears the Tao, they practice diligently. When a mediocre person, average person, hears the Tao, they waver. When a foolish person hears the Tao, they laugh. And yet, if such a one didn't laugh, then the Tao would not be the Tao. It's all included, but we have a choice. Sometimes we don't see that choice for ourselves. Or we see the choice and we still somehow act the other way. That's amazing, isn't it? To know the Four Noble Truths, know that grasping causes suffering, Mm -hmm. know all the things, all the the countless Dharma talks that everybody here has has heard, and still you go for it. Bite the bait another very fascinating thing, that mysterious moment where you have a choice towards freedom or towards pain. And you know what's going to happen and you go for it. Go for the pain. Go for the suffering. When you feel a wave of anger coming on, right? which is just an energy, and then there's this thought Why did she say that two months ago? And you can can kind of feel it coming in like a big meat hook, you know. Well, shall I go for it? Damn it, she did it! And then you get into this justifiable rage for five hours or so. This is you see that meat hook coming, you know, should I or shouldn't I? There's something so tantalizing about it. Or desire comes. You've got, say, a VR or or something that you're looking forward to having in your life, you know, kind of dangling in front of you, you know, and there you are minding your own business with the meditation. Well, this will be kind of interesting for a while. Yeah. Boom, you're gone. <laughs> or laziness, or self-judgment, or whatever your particular ones happen to be. You see them coming. Because it's very familiar, the conditioning is so strong, habituated patterns, and often there's not the, the strength of mindfulness to pause and to stop and to be still that creates some space. So, how can we bridge that gap between what we know to be true and unskillful action? One place to look is it intentions in the mind when you can notice what your intention is before going for the the hook is it to be entertained is it to get into some kind of alive feeling that's a little bit more fun than just watching another breath is it to feel more solid Or the intentions that come as you get yourself out of practice, walking, lifting, moving, placing, and then somebody comes by, you know, who might be interesting to look at, and it pulls your head out. Notice, notice before you do, that impulse. Where does it come from? If you look very carefully, you can learn a lot. Is it a feeling of wanting to connect, of loneliness? of curiosity, of desire, of aversion. You can learn a lot just in that moment, that mysterious moment. If you can notice those intentions, you've got some choice. If you don't, and you find yourself in the middle of the activity, you're gone for a while, but you still have choice when you remember to bring mindfulness into the process. And the Buddha talked about bringing mindfulness into the process wherever you happen to see it, whether it's at the beginning, the middle, the end, afterwards. It still has its potency and its purifying quality. This is again from, from the Buddha. In his advice to, um, to his son, Rahula, he said, Whatever action you intend to perform, by body, speech, or mind, you should consider that action. If in considering it, you realize, this action which I intend to perform will be harmful to myself, or harmful to others, or harmful to both, it will be an unwholesome action producing suffering, resulting in suffering, then you should certainly not perform that action. That's noticing the intention. Also, while you perform are performing an action, by body, speech, or mind, you should consider that action, and if in considering it you realize this action which I am performing is harmful to myself, or harmful to others, or harmful to both, it is an unwholesome action producing suffering, resulting in suffering, then you should desist from such an action. Also, after you have performed an action... By body, speech, or mind, you should consider that action. If, in considering, you realize this action which I have performed has been harmful to myself, or harmful to others, or harmful to both, it was an unwholesome action, producing suffering, resulting in suffering, then you should, in future, refrain from it. Very simple. Makes sense. It's just bringing mindfulness to bear wherever you happen to notice that process. This is from uh, Yonapanika Tara talking about <coughs> working with VRs in this, this equation. He says, <coughs> if the current of lust is still unchecked, <coughs> the thought of desire may express itself by speech. This is not on retreat. Outside of retreat. By speech, in asking for the desired object, or even demanding it with impetuous words. That is, unwholesome mental comma is followed by unwholesome verbal comma. A refusal will cause the original current of lust to branch out into additional streams of mental defilements, either of sadness or of anger. But if even at that late stage one can stop for quiet reflection or bare attention and accepting the refusal renounce wish fulfillment, further complications will be avoided. But if clamoring words are followed by action, unwholesome bodily comma, and if driven by craving, <coughs> one tries to get possession of the object of one's desire by stealth or force, then the comic entanglement is complete and the full impact of its consequences will be experienced by the doer. If, even after the completion of the evil act, the doer stops for reflection, that is, if mindfulness takes the form of remorseful retrospection, it will not be in vain. It will preclude a hardening of character and may prevent a repetition of the same course of action. That's with people or objects or whatever. One additional component that gives intention power is the quality of resolution. Resolution, it's one of the paramitas or perfections that creates a decision in the mind. A decision to refrain or to carry through. And so if you've got a good idea what you'd like to see happen, notice what happens when you decide to take a certain course of of action, then it's not just a good idea or a wish. It becomes a course of action. And little by little, as you see the other possibilities, you can experience the lightness that comes from being freed from that. The Buddha talked about the bliss of blamelessness from unskillful actions. I love that expression. The bliss of blamelessness. He talks about different kinds of bliss. bliss of having things. It's nice to have things. The bliss of wealth and being able to use them wisely. The bliss of debtlessness, not owing anybody anything. And the bliss of blamelessness. Four kinds of blisses. And he says that the first three have not one sixteenth the potency of the bliss of blamelessness. Feel so light not to be carrying around stuff inside of our hearts. And if we found that we've been caught up in so much unskillful action, guilt does not help the process. It just keeps it going. Wise reflection is what helps the process, seeing what has led to suffering and another course of possible action. Letting ourselves be touched by those moments of purity and honesty. And seeing the power of them and also recognizing the vastness of this journey that we're on. We can slowly, slowly purify ourselves. Slowly but surely purify ourselves. There's a beautiful passage that I've read at many retreats in the last last couple of years that really sums it up beautifully. This is called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Chapter 1 I walk down the street There is a deep hole in the sidewalk I fall in I'm lost I'm helpless It isn't my fault It takes forever to find a way out Chapter 2 I walk down the same street There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3 I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. (laughs) Little by little, little by little, Drop by drop, the Buddha gave the image, drop by drop by drop, each drop counts, each drop of mindfulness counts. So we don't have to waste our time thinking, oh, if only this, if I only didn't have that, or that didn't happen to me, or if only I could do better. That's just wasting your time. Use our time here wisely. It's such an incredible opportunity, and each moment counts. And there is that process of opening and purification that we're all walking on together. So, we can take some time if there's any questions or comments. If one doesn't act on the stimulus, yeah. uh,
2: am I missing the point, or or is this suppression involved in, in what you were discussing?
0: Not in not in mindfulness. In mindfulness, there's there's not suppression. There's simply observing and understanding, just seeing the thought as a thought without reacting to it then you don't have to suppress you don't have to act on you simply observe it coming and going that's the beauty of it you don't have to be engaged in a battle it's like putting down putting down the battle and mindfulness itself is a purifying force because you're not grasping you're not condemning and you're not identifying
2: I still don't quite understand what past lives. <coughs> uh, people often talk about past lives, they were this and that, and past lives conditions produced me mm-hmm. in this situation. I, I really don't understand people really experience past lives in myths how, or if it's just like a mythic metaphor. Mm-hmm. Or generalized karma, do you uh, have any experience uh, with that? You're a realistically
0: impersonal. You're a human. Is that an I mean, is that, what, you, what
2: is past life? I, mean, I really don't understand
0: either. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I have a sense. I have a strong sense. I have a sense. Uh, and I've had feelings of familiarity, whether deja vu or just kind of senses. But it's something that I have, don't have concrete evidence of. And it doesn't really matter. The Buddha talked about, about karma and past lives and stuff like that. He said, don't think about it too much, it'll drive you crazy. It's one of the four things that he said would drive you crazy. The others are (laughs) knowing how it all started, knowing the range of a mind in deep absorption, and knowing the range of a Buddha mind. So, don't drive yourself crazy.
1: about uh, um, acts of compassion and suffering and crime and all that. And yeah. yeah. still was something that we was the a cat was there, And we were out walking. And the cat had found a little bowl of the mouse and with uh, playing with it and wounded it. And they were playing around uh, they and the cat was playing in the mouse wasn't <laughs> um, <and, and>, anyway <coughs> It was playing with the mouse, you know, hitting it some more, and then the mouse would try and get away, and then it would hit some more. The mouse would suffer. was suffering. And it's interesting to watch the different movies and what they And it brought up a bunch of questions that I still haven't been able to answer, which is when is that just cat Capcom and mouse come? <laughs> you know? And when is it and a, a, an act of compassion to get away?
0: when you feel motivated to get involved. Mm-hmm.
1: And when you don't is it purposely more compassionate? Is it a bad thing?
0: Mm-hmm. I can't sit up here and say what's bad and what's good. Um, and there's no right form to define that
1: I Societies,
0: these people that develop into
1: attachments and something. And something exceeding a lot of you and the
0: question is <laughs> just keep on looking inside at your own motivation and your heart? And is there, a, is there an open heartedness in the action, or is there a, a tightness and a contraction and a, and a fear? And come from the place with as much. See, compassion is different than pity, in that, in pity, your heart is, is fearful and closed. In compassion, it's open, you're responding as best you can. Sometimes that'll be responding with action, sometimes it'll be saying no. You just have to keep on coming back to yourself and stay clear. That's what it seems to me. I I have
3: a little difficulty with the afterlife anecdotes that seem to pop up in the talks and in the literature, too. You know, motivations for practice consideration of the possibility of future lives, uh, whether they could be better than this one, far worse than this one. And to me that, in my mind, really rings a lot of bells, of fear and desire. And um, I, I just kind of wonder how much of that is what the Buddha really had to say and how much of that is what people came on who objectified his ideas and wanted to Say later, because it seems like the same thing happened in Christianity in most big religious, powerful religions. Someone comes along with a, a, a beautiful, wonderful insight about the reality and the truth of the moment, and going beyond desire and fear. But then after they pass on, their their disciples are always kind of turning that into the, the main thing.
0: Well, mm, I wasn't there, but. The Buddha seemed to talk a lot about future lives, past lives, getting freedom and liberation when you have the opportunity to. Um, And it is a different tone than probably uh, resonates with you. It might be interesting for you to read the the, uh, sutras. And if it doesn't resonate for you, then just let it go because it's not, it's not the essential uh, belief that's required for practice. Whatever motivates you to practice is perfectly fine. And let go of the ones that, that don't connect for you.
3: Moment is a complete moment, and so we have an infinite number of future lives within this biological body Um, time. Karma then makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Future lives and past
2: lives seem within the context
0: of each moment. It's on that level too. In each moment, there's a birth and a death. Absolutely. That's, that's another way to look at
2: it. Right. Jamie, we were reading from the, I think it was the Vasudhi and Buddha was talking about um, the different defilements of mind. He was making the comparison to the gold and the goldsmith. And he said that the, the various... When a monk is in training or a nuns in training, that they get to certain understanding and they still have certain defilements. And I, what I didn't understand was he seemed, to, or the language that was used was that he he puts those away. And you sort of just put them away.
0: <laughs> 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 Find the right drawer.
2: <laughs> and then and then at some point, all of a sudden. Uh, Oh, yeah, and then there was a reference to the suppression of the defilements. Mm-hmm. And then there's a level at which is attained where there isn't, isn't a suppression anymore. And I guess what my question is, what's the transition?
0: Hmm. It seems to me you do the best you can for wherever you are. And you you don't try you try to stay out of situations that cultivate certain ones and have a kind of restraint from giving in to certain ones and that in due time it happens on its own that they don't have that same attraction for you. It's like a child You know, when you were young, you probably had a favorite toy. Is it still your favorite toy now? (laughs) After a while, it will lose its attraction. You know, if you're, unless you like to play with rattles or whatever. (laughs) But mostly, we we let go of our favorite toy, and then there's another favorite toy. (laughs) And it seems in time there's there's different. Different things that compel us, or that that hold a, an interest for us, and what we're doing here is kind of cha- changing the uh, changing the game. And what is compelling us as we practice more is to not increase our desires, but to let go of them because there's we see there's some kind of value to that, and that's 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 the next game. It happens to be one that that brings a lot of freedom. So just, I would say, through clear seeing, through keeping on looking at what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. At first it's um, prompted. At first you have to think your way through it. And then it starts to, after a while, lose its appeal. I couldn't say any more about the exact mechanics, but if you look in your own practice, over time, the things that that interested you a few years ago. Uh, We've all grown probably so much over the last few years. Who knows how that happens, but it it seems to.
2: I guess what my concern is sometimes is a sense of that just being mindful and paying attention to the to the arising and passing of internal states and so forth and feelings and thoughts and patterns. The question that comes up is, is, is that enough? And is it Mm. it just being suppressed by mindfulness in a sense? Not
0: suppressed. Understood. If you're continuously mindful, that seems to be enough. Yeah. (laughs) And the moments of mindfulness start to break that, that, that chain of momentum. But at other times, the mindfulness isn't strong enough, so you need to use other ways to deal with it, like... Restraint, like commitment, like resolution, things like that. So there's lots of different tools that you use, like loving kindness, where there's a lot of self-condemning. You use whatever you can, but the mindfulness is the most potent of them. Yeah. Just close with this this reading, and then I'll talk about tomorrow in a bit. Says This is from uh, uh, Chuang Tzu. Great knowledge is all-encompassing. Small knowledge is limited. Great words are inspiring. Small words are chatter. When we are awake, our senses open. We get involved with our activities and our minds are distracted. Sometimes we're hesitant. Sometimes (coughs) underhanded. And sometimes secretive. Little fears cause anxiety, and great fears cause panic. Our words fly off like arrows, as though we knew what was right and wrong. We cling to our own point of view, as though everything depended on it. And yet, our opinions have no permanence. Like autumn and winter, they gradually pass away. We are caught in the current and cannot return. We are tied up in knots like an old clogged drain. We are getting closer to death with no way to regain our youth. Joy and anger, sorrow and happiness, hope and fear, indecision and strength, humility and willfulness, enthusiasm and insolence, like music sounding from an empty reed or mushrooms rising from the warm, dark earth, continually appear before us day and night. No one knows whence they come. Don't worry about it. Let them be. How can we understand it all in one day?
3: It's
0: an amazing process that we're in the middle of.
1: Okay, now as far as tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.